Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Uh, today's the first Sunday of Kiech, and uh, as you know, there are four Sundays in Kiech, and then we have the Feast of the Nativity on the 29th of Kiech. Uh, it's a little confusing because we started the fast, uh, I think it was the day after Thanksgiving on a Friday, so we've been fasting for a while, um, the Nativity fast, but we just started Kiech, I think, yesterday, um, and so you'll notice a few things change, um, and especially in the tunes of the church. You'll notice that, uh, and especially as soon as the sermon's done, you'll hear the tune of Kiech. It's a different kind of tune um, that we start only once the month starts. Um, and of course, fasting, uh, as we all know, the, when we think about the nativity fast, it's not about food um, and, and changing our diet. You know, obviously, God doesn't care that we changed our diet if I used to eat this thing and now I eat this thing. Um, that doesn't, that's not what's, what's relevant here. Um, but what it is, is it's opening myself up to something beyond myself to limit me uh, so that there is more God, that, that he must increase and, and I must decrease. Um, so the idea is to focus on something bigger than ourselves. Um, and each fast has a specific purpose and a specific reason. Lent is a time for repentance. Um, the fast of St. Mary is a fast, a time, a time to think about um, the virtues of saints, especially uh, personified in St. Mary. And the Advent fast is a time to think about what God did for us as, as men. Um, and what we find when we hear the tunes of Kiech is it's emotional. There's an emotion to it. And emotions have a place in our worship. Um, much like, 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 like last night, we read about the woman who dumped uh, a fragrant oil on Jesus' head. It's kind of an emotional act. In fact, everyone chastised her and said, what are you doing? You know, you just wasted all this money and you only need a little bit of this very fragrant oil. And she dumped the whole bottle. And so, of course, the whole house stunk up with this very fragrant oil. It's an emotional act. Um, and that's okay. It, it, it depicted her love and it showed her feelings towards Christ. And we hear this in the tunes of the church. Um, and so the Nativity Fast is a time for this kind of festiveness, this kind of excitement. Um, it's not really a, a time of repentance as much as it's a time to marvel about who God is and what God is and the love that God has for us. Um, and that's why that we have that perky feel, right? And, and, and worship without emotion is kind of cold um, and it loses its meaning um, as an act of love uh, when it loses its, its, its warmth and its, its fervor. Um, and so whenever worship becomes a routine, it degenerates and isn't part of what the specific purpose of orthodoxy is. You know, we believe that the spiritual worship and life is something I do um, and that, that comes and, and express, expresses the emotions that are in, the, in my heart. So this whole season of Kiek for the next four weeks is this season of love. It's this focus on what God did towards mankind. And the secret of the incarnation, as you all know, is that God loved to such an extent that he united himself with us, his creation. Um, and there's a, there's a great book by Father Matthew the Poor called Love Took Flesh. And I didn't need much other than to see the title, Love Took Flesh. Not the Word of God, not the Logos of the Father, not the mind of the Father, not a bunch of Greek words. He just said, Love Took Flesh. 
And he talks about this day, and it's really quite amazing. I'll read, it to, I'll read to you from it. It says, it is God's day and not a human day. One can say that the joy of the nativity is equal to the joy of a thousand years of human joys if, it, if they were to be combined together without sadness. So the joy of the nativity is equal to a thousand years of human joys if they could be all combined. And so I love that when we look around the church and we look around the world, actually, we see this joy. Um, And one of the nice things about the West is there's so much happiness around Christmas. There's Christmas lights everywhere. There's decorations everywhere. And sure, it's kind of materialistic and it's all about getting you to buy more stuff and, and, and we get that. But having said that, it's nice that we see peace and joy and, and so much decoration and so much excitement and Christmas carols all around this season. And even the fact that the church is so nicely decorated as a festive, um, as part of this festive uh, time in, in the year. And the old American hymn proclaims joy to the world. The Lord is come, let earth receive her king and heaven and nature sing. And it's that last part that I want to focus on, heaven and nature sing. Father Matthew the poor talks about this. He echoes it. He says, heaven rejoiced at the nativity. For the first time in the life of all creation, the events of the earth became a joy for the heavenly ones. Because of the greatness and universality of this joy, the angels came out of their eternal silence and shared with us their joy and revealed this wonderful news. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to you, which will be to all people. And I like this expression. The angels came out of their eternal silence. It's like this day was so packed with emotion and love and excitement that the angels who were silent and um, invisible all of these centuries, millennia, came out of their darkness, came out of their silence and spoke and glorified God. It's like they couldn't stay quiet. And so I want to talk about this concept of what God did on this day. And, and when you look at the gospel, I mean, and, and you read how the disciples and people interacted with Jesus, with Christ, it's interesting. I mean, Peter one time said to Jesus, he said, you know, we've left everything to follow you. And who says that? That's just a very harsh thing. I mean, I left everything to follow you, which means you know, I wouldn't say that to a priest. You wouldn't say that to a bishop. You wouldn't say that to anyone at any kind of authority, right? It'd be kind of a rude thing to say to the priest or the I've left everything to follow you or to follow this church. And would you ever, would a priest ever say something like that to a bishop? And so the question begs is, is that it begs is how approachable was Christ that Peter could just say that, you know, just take a shot at him, right? And every once in a while you read in the in the story of the, of the Gospels, that some of the apostles just kind of let something fly at Christ. And it's like he came and he made himself at their level, like them, like us. Not just even a human being, but a homeless one. And not just a homeless human being, but an excessively homeless human being. And so he made himself so much like the people that they could just say whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted it. Right? Things that I wouldn't say to a priest or a bishop, that he, these people said to Christ himself. And so St. Macarius, he echoes this notion. He says, the infinite, inaccessible, and uncreated God assumed a body. And on account of his immense and ineffable kindness, if I may so, if I may so say it, 
he diminished himself, lessening his inaccessible glory so as to be able to be united with his visible creatures, as with the souls of the saints and angels, so they can be made participators of divine life. And so it's like Christ, God lessened himself, which, by the way, is the reason Islam has such a problem with Christianity. It's all about this Christ. How could God, Allah, come down to that level and be like you and me? That's, it just doesn't enter the mind. And they have a point. It doesn't really make sense that God would come down to that level. What kind of God was he? And so this in, the incarnation becomes this instrument with which God the Father uses and reveals his love to us through this action. He wants to unite to humans in such a way, to creatures, through his son, Jesus Christ. And this is really the point of the incarnation. It's the point of Christianity. It's to bring us together and not separate. And so the theologians will talk about this exchange formula, right, in the incarnation that, that we say, as we say in the Theotokia, he took what is ours and gave us what is his. He took what is ours and gave us what is his. And this is a refrain we say. We said it last night uh, during Sabar Ba. Kiak praises. I encourage all of you to come. So Christ took our weakness and gave us his strength. He took our flesh in order to give us his Holy Spirit. There's this exchange. He assumes poverty so that we become rich. And he wore our nature to clothe us with his nature. So he came to restore us back to this image of this, of him, of who he is. And I imagine this idea of image versus likeness, right? So image is something each of us is born with, right? When, we, when we're born, our little, our kids have our image, right? They look like us. They, their, their ears are like ours. Their eyes are like ours. Their hair is like ours. Hopefully not mine. Um, but likeness is, in, is, is, uh, is different. Like likeness is acquired, and so I imagine this story that a son was born and his dad looked at him and he said, wow, this kid looks just like me. I can't wait to raise him and make him just like me. And then when this kid's whatever, two, three years old, he gets kidnapped. He gets kidnapped by a group of people who take him in you know, some, a den of terrorists and they put him in their little compound and they want to raise him as their own. And so the father is distraught because the son has been because the son has been kidnapped, and now the son, not that his son won't um, won't have a good life, but he won't be like his father. He won't look and think like his father does. So what does the father do? He can't get the son out of this compound, right? That the son has been kidnapped. He's in this compound. So what does the dad do? He says, I want my son to know me. I want him to think like me and act like me. I want him to know who his dad was. So what does he do? He hides. He puts on a, an outfit, looks like a terrorist, and he infiltrates the compound. And he lives inside the compound with his kid. And every time his kid's doing something or saying something that he wouldn't do, that some terrorist taught him how to do, it's like the dad says, no, don't do it like this. Do it like this. Don't say those words, say these words. Don't give that emotion, give this emotion. Don't hate love. And so this is what Christ did. 
We, after our, our creation, were almost kidnapped by Satan, taken and put away from him, and Christ came down and went into the world, penetrated the world, and said, I'm going to live with my kids, and I want them to know me and think like me. St. John Chrysostom says this exact same thing. He says, he that sits on the right hand of his father, he was willing to become our brother in all things. And for this reason, he left the angels and came down to us. And so this idea of being approachable is so important because that's what Christ did. He came down to us to be approachable. A few years ago, some of us went to go listen to Abbe Trifon. I don't know if you know him. He's a kind of a, a famous monk out in, in Seattle. And we went to an Eastern Orthodox church, and he was supposed to give a talk on the Incarnation. And I still remember this very vividly because I was expecting some kind of theological discourse, something about St. Athanasius, about the Word of God and how it took flesh. And instead, all he did was tell stories about God reaching out to people, God touching people, story after story. They're just stories, really cool stories, but stories nonetheless. And then he would end each story with, and that's the incarnation, God reaching down to people. It's like reaching out of the sky and touching human beings. There's this great little book called A Spring in Sinai. It's about the martyrdom of Father Mina Abud. And while I was in the altar, I found a picture of him. He was just staring at me, so I figured I, sh I should tell the story. So this is him. Uh, in 2013, he was martyred. He was um, uh, assassinated by, by terrorists. And the impact of his life is just amazing. His book is really, really good. I highly recommend it. But one story stood out to me, and I just it's just a small story, but it's really it's kind of cute. It's how he connected with the people he served. So Abun Amina was unique, and I'll just read you from the book his wife wrote, in that he knew how to talk to everyone in the language they were most comfortable with. He related with everyone. Upper Egyptians, Saida, have a unique dialect as compared to people in Cairo. And whenever Father Mina sat with an upper Egyptian, he'd switch his dialogue, dialect and speak like them. So you can imagine he's from Cairo, and as soon as he sits with a Saidi, he starts talking Saidi. It's a very small thing, but he wanted to make the Saidi feel comfortable. I'll say it another way. He wanted to be approachable. And with the youth, he'd joke and tease and laugh and speak to them in the way that they liked to be spoken to. In this manner, he was able, able, he was able to win everyone over and was loved by all. And so isn't this exactly what the incarnation is? Isn't this the point of God coming down to mankind? Abu Amina is reflecting Christ in this nativity. And that's what we say in the Gregorian liturgy, right? Don't we say, you became for us a mediator between the Father and the, the wall of division you broke down. So there used to be this wall, this barrier between us and you, God and man, and you broke that wall. You penetrated the wall, you came down into our lives and reconciled the earthly and the heavenly and made the two into one. These are the words of the Gregorian liturgy. And so I want to end with this, this final point. Sometimes people will ask us and ask our kids and ask you, why are you a Christian? And this is a question our parents didn't struggle with much in Egypt. Because if you're not a Christian in Egypt, you're a Muslim. And I'm not going to be a Muslim. So the answer is easy, right? No one asks that question in Egypt. But here you get asked that question. 
people in high school, people in junior high, people in college, why are you a Christian? And what's the answer? And in, in other places, it's, it's there, there is, there's only two choices, right? It's us versus them, and I'm going to be us, I'm not going to be them. And so it's an easy answer. Um, but in our culture, it's one we can't answer so easily and escape from so easily. And the worst thing we can possibly say, and the weakest answer, I think, is that I was born into it. This is the way my parents raised me. This is my, the, the faith of my parents and my forefathers. It's not a very good answer. St. Peter in his epistle tells us, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with respect and gentleness. And so we're called to have answers to this question. And so maybe saying I was born this way and this is the way my parents made me or you know, raised me, okay, that's good when we're young, right? But as you get older, you have to have a better answer than that, right? You have to at some point have cognitively thought about what it is and why you do what you do. And that this choice has to be purposeful, thoughtful, intentional, and not just something I happened into because I'm Egyptian. And so for me, I'm a Christian because I have the most thoughtful and loving God. If I compare the depiction of God across all religions and the way God perceives me and the way I'm meant to perceive God, I honestly think I have the best God on that list. Why? Because I believe I would pick my God because he's a God that is all love. In fact, he said, I am love. And what other religion says that God is love? I have a God that is with me and not against me. Not a God that's waiting for me to fail and sitting back and seeing if I fulfill all of his commandments and punish me if I don't fulfill his commandments, but rather a God that is with me and waiting to help carry me across that finish line. I don't want a God that I am afraid of, that I worship because of punishment. And if that's the case, then let's avoid this God, which is what many atheists do. And can you imagine a God who just you know, holds a weapon over you and says, you have to worship me. And if you don't worship me, I'm going to punish you. And I will punish you eternally. Well, I mean, I will listen to a God like that. I'll obey a God like that. I'll fear a God like that. But I'll never love a God like that. That, that won't be a relationship of love ever. And so my God isn't waiting for me to worship him and follow his orders and request that I bow to him. He is waiting to give me such that my cup runneth over. He's willing to give me with his grace and pour it on me generously. He loves me even if I deny him, even if I hate him, even if I turn my back on him, spit on him. And we see this in the story of the father and the prodigal son, the dad that loves no matter what the son does. And so let's take this month of Kek and ponder this. Let's take these, you know, take four minutes a day and just ponder. What kind of God is this? What kind of God would humiliate himself, as St. Macarius and St. John Chrysostom said, and come down to this level? It doesn't fit with the concept of some all-powerful, almighty God who's vengeful. My God is the one that came down to my level so that I can understand him. And many other religions talk about a God in the sky, some philosophical debate about God and his properties and what he must be like and how his, you know, what his, his characteristics must be. 
But my God went out of his way and came down to my level so that I could comprehend him. Not a God that's so high in the sky, who's beyond knowledge I can know nothing about, but I want to know my God. I want a God that I can see, that I can touch, whose words I can read and hear. I don't want a concept or an equation or some philosophical reasoning. I want a God that I can live with, I can relate to, that's tangible and that's personal at my own level. And this is, this is what the gospel says, right? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Gospels, the gospel says that he revealed to the Father, the Father to us in himself. So as long as God is up in the sky, I cannot know him. It's too hard to know a God that's just in the sky. And Christianity offers me the God that came down to my level so I can know him intimately. And not just intimately, this, this person did not appear as a king or an emperor or someone in absolute power and authority. So if I was God and I was to come down to earth, I would come down and there'd be a lot of people worshiping me and a lot of power and a lot of soldiers and a lot of things. But this God came down as a broken man in every sense of the word, one that's homeless, one that's struggling, it's persecuted, he's cursed, he's incorrectly, unjustly judged. He didn't come in absolute power. He came broken in every sense. And because there are many times in my life where I'm struggling and I'm persecuted and I'm cursed and I'm unjustly judged. And so that's really the only thing that makes sense. The most beautiful answer is the one where God comes so I can see him and he can relate to me in all of my brokenness of this earth. And that's what St. John told us, told us, right? He said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim. So during the season of Nativity and Christmas, I pick Christianity because it presents a God that is good, a God that is close to me, a God that is approachable, who came down to me, who feels my pain. Such when I'm tired, he understands. And when I'm hurt, he understands. And when I'm sad, he gets it. And even when I tell him, Satan is tempting me very hard, he can understand that as well. And so, let's take a few minutes a day to meditate on, meditate on the phrase, love took flesh, and showed us the true God that we worship and what the incarnation means and this meditation will help me comprehend to what degree I am called to be united with God. And that's what Emmanuel means, isn't it? God is with us. So I'm called to taste this same grace in my own life, not just intellectually, but in the true presence. As, Saint, as David the prophet says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And St. Peter tells us to become partakers of divine nature. Emmanuel, God is with us in us, through us. Okay, and finally, what does our Lord do when he comes into this world of ours? What does he do when he comes down from heaven and touches every one of us? So as the Theotokia says, he took what is ours and gave us what is his. What does that mean? I want to read to you a sermon that someone forwarded to me by Bunabshoi Kamil, um, the Abunam Shoy Kamla from Alexandria, he was recently canonized as a saint. 
And he discusses the fact that it is our cravings and our desires and these base passions of ours that propels us towards a life with God. So I'll read it to you. He says, what do we consider bad in a person? Is it a person's sensual cravings, base instincts, desires? In actuality, people's capacity to desire, to lust, is the most beautiful thing about humans for the following reason. A person without cravings and desires cannot logically desire, crave, or want God's love. A wholesome individual whose desire reflects a weak spiritual relationship with God and he, she will likely show weakness when responding to his calls. So what he's saying is, and I'm going to use the word in Arabic that Abun Shoy Kamil used, shahwa. I can't even translate it. This idea of desire and lust and craving. And what he's saying is, if you don't have those things, you can't follow God. We know that St. Moses the Strong was also extremely aggressive in his evil ways. Nevertheless, he was just as aggressive in his repentance to God. Truly, Christianity today needs people who are strong-willed, persistent in performing God's service, and passionate about living out their Christian walk. The Lord's commandments are not easy. Who but the stubborn, courageous, and unordinary can successfully follow Him? So have you sinned? Your sins and weaknesses, listen to this, are the very superpowers that enable you to draw near to God. I'll say it again. Your sins and weaknesses are the very superpowers that enable you to draw near to God. I ask you again, what bad exists in people? Rather than scrutinize what I lack or do wrong, I should ask the Lord to transform those bad qualities into good. The struggles we abhor and feel embarrassment over are the means by which we can best serve Him. The body of Christ is weakened when people such as these choose not to return to God. So again, I'll end with, he takes what is ours and gives us what is his. Blessed Nativity Fast and glory be to God forever. Amen. We send you greetings with Gabriel, the angels saying hail to you.